My name is Dean. I've been here once or twice, so you may have remember me, you may not remember me. But anyways, I'm here, and I'm one of the pastors at Alpine. I'm kind of over the HR and the financial areas, so I just, before I begin, just want to thank you for your faithful um, stewardship and giving over the past year, etc. This really is helpful to continue to help others pursue God. So thank you so much for everything that you do. Well, we're in a series called The Pursuit. As you know, I think this is week six of that pursuit. And it's a discipleship series. And so if you've been around the church for a long time, this is something that you could use to help others pursue God. And if you're new, this is a great opportunity to hear the foundations of the Christian faith um, as we move through these, these weeks. So two weeks ago, we looked at the fact that although we are created in the image of God, and because of that we have value, we have a little issue. It's called the human condition called sin. And because of that, we have a break, a separation from a holy God. And last week, we looked at the solution, which is Jesus. And Jesus is the one through whom we can be reconciled. He is the one who has the power over sin and death. He is the one who can judge and will judge the living and the dead. He is the one who can forgive your sins and mine. He is the one who we can have peace with God through for now and eternity. It is his name and his name only. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that information? And that is what we're going to be looking at today. How do we get right with God? Is it by coming to church 40 out of the 50-some weeks of the year? Is it by giving a certain percentage of your money? Is it by doing a list of a certain number of things? Is that the answer? What must I do to be saved? And that question has been asked millions of times over the past 2,000 years since a jailer asked it at that time. Paul and Silas, they were in Thya, um, excuse me, they were um, in Thyatira, and uh, they uh, went to the city and uh, got dragged into the marketplace um, before the um, authorities of that town, and they were thrown into prison, beaten and thrown into prison because they were confusing the, the town of what was uh, with this new way that was being spoken by them. And so they got thrown into prison, they were shackled, um, feet were shackled, and so they were there, and they, that night they began to pray and sing praises to God, and an earthquake took place that opened the prison doors and unfastened their stocks. Now, that's not normally what an earthquake does, <laughs> um, nor does an earthquake usually open tombs, which happened when Christ was raised from, when Christ was crucified. And so when the jailer awoke from his sleep, he 
decided I better take my sword and I better end my life because I know that all of the prisoners have left. And therefore, I'm going to be held responsible for that. That was my responsibility. So let me take my life. But Paul called out and said, don't, don't do that. Um, we are still here. And so the jailer said, well, get me some light. And they got light, and he went in, and the Bible says, with fear and trembling, he stood before them. And I'm sure there was fear because of the earthquake. There may have been fear that he experienced because that he thought that maybe he'd have to end his life. But by the question he asked next, it's probably fear of the God who performed this miracle of this earthquake that unbound the prisoners. And so he asks a question, and it's the question that is a life-changing question. And that question is, what must I do to be saved? And there are other terms that you might be familiar with that we kind of use to mean that same thing. What does it take to be born again? What does it take to be a Christian? What does it take to ask Jesus into my heart? What does it mean to follow Jesus, to trust in Jesus? How do I experience what's called a defining moment? And all of these are in response to recognizing our human condition and recognizing that Jesus is the solution. And so today... To answer that question, what must I do to be saved, we're going to look at five overarching verses that give us a good definition and help us define what saving faith is. And the first verse we're going to look at is 1 John 4, 9, and it is a verse that's kind of something that we've been going over these past several weeks, so it's kind of a reminder but also it reminds us of why we are really responding and what we are really responding to. So 1 John 4, 9 says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that he might have eternal life through him. The point being, at the bottom here, out of love, God sent Jesus into the world to solve our sin problem. John 3.16, we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. Ephesians 2.4, for God being rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us. And then in Revelations 1.5, and from Jesus Christ, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. We have a creator who believed and took the time and believed that it was worth it to make a way for us to have a relationship with him now and for eternity. God took action, not out of obligation, not because he was forced to, not because he owed us anything, not because he had selfish reasons, not because... We loved him so much. God took action because he loved. He loved us. For those of you that are parents, 
there is something inside you that, how many of you are parents? Okay. There's something inside you that makes you say, you know what? If I have to step in front of a speeding truck to save my kid, I'm going to do it. You'd give anything in your life to save your child. And that's what God has done for us through Jesus. And that, lo- that something is love. And that love originated in God. And it was demonstrated to us through Jesus, who gave his life for you and for me. That is why Paul in Philippians says that Jesus was God in the flesh. Even though Jesus was God in the flesh, he emptied himself. He became a bondservant. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. God emptied himself for you. He became a bondservant for you. He died for you and for me. So when we talk about what it means to have saving faith, it starts with acknowledging and accepting this love for us. You know, some people, unfortunately, stop right here because they don't believe God can love them. They don't believe anybody can love them. They don't believe that they're worthy of any love. And maybe you're feeling like that this morning. Well, guess what? That's why God died on the cross for you. We're all unworthy. And God demonstrates his love for us. He defines love by who he is. So saving faith starts and accepts God's love for you. Acts 26 through 38 is the second overarching verse that verses that we are going to look at that explain and define saving faith for us. And so let's read that together. Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, to repent. Now there's two sides of a coin. Um, and the point down below is saving faith requires both, both the right information and the right attitude. So we have two sides to the coin, or we have the inside or the outside of what Jared says is a Michelin tire. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if it's a Michelin tire or not. But the outside of the tire is the right information. We do need to know the right information. We do need to know who Jesus Christ was, what he did for us. We do need to know who we are and what we need. That right information is critical. But the right information alone is not enough. Intellectual belief is not enough for this saving faith. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one. Well, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Believing and having this intellectual knowledge is not enough. It has to travel from the head to the heart. 
And so the second part of that tire, the inside of that tire, is the right attitude, a genuine repentance. Now our passage in Acts kind of gives us both, so let's look, that, look at that again. Acts 2.37 starts out with saying, now when they heard this, this is the intellectual part, what did they hear? Well, this was Peter's second sermon. It was to, an, uh, to the um, Jewish audience, the Israelites, and he was explaining to them that it was through, he explained through their own prophets that this man that was crucified was their Messiah. That he died and was risen again, and they didn't recognize it at the beginning. But when he explained it to them and they did recognize it, here's their response. They were pierced to the heart. They were stung sharply. They were stunned. The jailer trembled. The demon shuddered. And they were pierced to the heart. There was an emotional response. They had just been to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and then during that period of time, they crucified this man, and now all of a sudden, they realized that this man was their Messiah. Have you ever um, been in a situation where this person comes up to you, and they start talking to you, and you don't know who they are? And they are acting like you're their best friend, and you're like, I wish I knew who you were, and I wish somebody would come save me and, you know, mention a name or something that would remind me of who this person is. And then when, you know, the awkwardness happens or whatever, you just, you feel terrible. You feel, you, you feel embarrassed, you feel terrible. Well, just multiply that by a thousand percent for these individuals that heard this message. They were blind to who their own Messiah was. And when they found out who it was and they were pierced to their heart, they asked this question. Brethren, what shall we do? They understood who Jesus was. They were convicted of the fact that they were sinful and they put him to death. And so what was the answer? What shall we do? And Paul responds and says, and Peter, I'm sorry, and Peter said to them, repent. Have a change of heart. Turn your direction from this way to this way. Have regret. You know, if we don't have any regret for our sin, and we're not moved by God's love towards us, we will never trust in Jesus for his salvation. We need both. We need the knowledge and we need the heart. When I was a young boy, I don't know, I was pretty young, um, I went on a vacation with my parents and relatives and we rented this houseboat and uh, my sister and my cousin and I were on the front of this houseboat. You know, they kind of have the pontoons on the side and this area in the front. So we were just sitting in the front, letting the waves kind of hit our legs or whatever. And, 
So we were up there for quite a while, and then all of a sudden, I got up, and I went back to my grandmother, and I said, my life jacket's not zipped up. And so she zipped my life jacket up. I went back and sat down, and 30 seconds later, I was under the boat. Now, if I had not taken the action to get that life jacket zipped up, I probably wouldn't be here today. Life jacket's important. We all know it can save your life. But if you don't wear it, or you don't wear it correctly, it's not going to save you at all. Saving grace, saving faith includes repentance, a change of heart. But the third verse that helps us define saving faith is Ephesians Chapter 2, verse 8 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. The point is, we are saved 100% by grace the moment we trust Jesus for salvation. There's no level of personal performance that can earn God's approval. There's a ton of illustrations that can be used with this. I've heard thousands of them. There's the illustration of Everybody's on the side of the lake. There's a pier. The other side of the lake is way over here. Some people are going to jump further off that pier than others, but nobody's going to get close to the other side. You're not going to make it. Baseball, even the best batter, what's their average? 350 or something? You know, there might be others that are at 200. There might be some at three. 20, but nobody's 500, nobody's 600, nobody's 700, 800, 900, 1,000. We can't earn God's approval. God's gift included his sacrifice, his life. He lived a perfect life. It included his forgiveness of his sins. How could we add to that? Romans 5 Verse 19 says, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Does that say anything about my obedience or your obedience? No. It doesn't say anything about our obedience. It talks about Christ's obedience. The Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Well, the last time I was aware, if you're dead, there's not much you can do. You're dead. Isaiah says the nation of Israel, he tells the nation of Israel that they had sinned and that, that all of their righteous deeds, all of their sacrifices... Were as like filthy garments. They added up to nothing. Saving faith falls back on God and His grace and His gift. How many of you um, are familiar with that trust game where you uh, stand there and you have people behind you, maybe two or three or four, and then you just fall back and hope they catch you? So I've actually never done that. But, um, <laughs> but anyways, um, 
when you do that, when you start falling back, there is nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to stop. There's nothing you can do to make sure that they grab you. There's nothing. Some of us have some self-control, um, some act, not self-control, but some of us have a control issue in our lives. We like to be in control. So I imagine if you're one of those people, you don't really play that game um, because that means you don't, you're not in control. Some of you may not have a control issue, but some of you may um, be really good at giving but really bad at receiving. God, saving faith, trust in God's gift alone. You have to get over those control issues. You have to get over just giving. You have to let go and receive God's gift for you. Romans 3.22 is the fourth verse that helps us look at what saving faith is. It says, we are made with God, but we were made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. The point at the bottom, God offers this free gift to everyone, no matter what you've done. It's totally ironic to me that Paul is writing this. Because of anyone, Paul was not an individual that you would imagine was eligible to be saved. Here's a guy that was implicit in the murder of Stephen, who was full of power and of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, going around performing great wonders and signs, and was stoned to death. Paul, who at that time was Saul, was implicit in that murder. It also says, the Bible says that he went around ravaging the scattered church. He went in and dragged men and women out of their house to prison. The Bible says that he was breathing threats and murder to the disciples of the Lord. He was doing everything in his power to extinguish those, anyone who called on the name of Jesus. He was totally opposed. Paul himself, later on, says this. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. I'm the greatest sinner. He even says earlier that he is a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. And yet on a road to Damascus, God seeks him out. Now, if you're honest with yourself, Good thing I'm not God, because I would have sought him out, but I would not have sought him out to save him. I would have sought him out to kill him. Right? Here's a man 
that was destroying, attempting to destroy what Christ died for. And yet God reached out and saved him. And the Bible says that he saved him as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. In other words, anyone, anyone that felt unworthy had a partner in Paul. Heaven is not going to be filled with a bunch of goody two-shoes. Now, I don't even know if that's a word anymore. Um, I probably aged myself. I don't know. If, if you're under, I'm not going to lie about my age, but if you're under 50, because I'm over 50. Not, but anyways, you may not even understand that term. But anyways, um, it's not going to be filled with people that think they're perfect. It's going to be filled with people that have been redeemed. People that were captive by sin, and Christ paid the ransom to free them. It is going to be filled by people that understand what grace God has given them. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. For once I was blind. Now I see. You know, the author of that song was a British sailor. And he was an investor in the slave trade. And he also stated that he was a great sinner. He said, I sinned with a high hand and I made it my study to, to tempt and to seduce others. It's not who you are. And it's not what you've done that's important. It's who you become. John 1, 12, 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Paul was anything but, but he became a child of God. Paul, speaking to the Gentiles a little later, um, said, you know, you were far off. You were strangers. You were outsiders. But now you are fellow citizens. You are members of God's household. Saving faith has no boundaries. The final verse that helps us define saving faith is Romans 10.9. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The point? We start a relationship with God by personally trusting Jesus for salvation. No one can respond to faith for you. Not your relatives, not your friends. Just because you grew up in a Christian home doesn't mean you have saving faith. Saving faith is confessing Jesus as Lord of your life, testifying that what he did for you and that you're dependent on that for your salvation. You know, I have a hard time confessing that the Denver Broncos are the best team in the NFL. Um, 
And the reason why? Because um, I really don't believe in them. <laughs> I like them. I like them. My wife can tell you I like them. I've been a fan for 20-some years. Uh, I like their uniforms. I like the little Bronco. I like the town that they're in. I like Denver. So I like, I like the players. I follow the players. I'll go to the games if I can. I root for them. But I'm not going to bet my life or any of my money on the Denver Broncos. There are people in church just like that. They like church. They like the people. They like the singing. They might even like the church that Alpine has. Um, They might even like the messages. But they don't give their life to Jesus Christ. They may believe it but they haven't taken that second step. They haven't made him Lord of their lives. Saving faith is a personal confession. Well, the pursuit of God brings us to this defining moment. What will you do? Will you confess and continue in your pursuit of God? Or will you stop short Will you stop short of experiencing a new birth and having your sins washed away? You know, we all have defining moments in our lives. Um, Where we go to school, who we marry, what job we take, where we live. All of those have an impact on our lives. But they're all temporal. The only eternal defining moment in question is the question we have in front of us today. What must I do to be saved? Need to confess and believe. 55 years ago, now I'm kind of telling you my age, 55 years ago um, when I was five, and I don't remember anything about when I was five except this defining moment. When I accepted Jesus into my life, when I was saved. It was a morning, just like every other morning. My mom would bring me into the front room. She had this little Bible book that she'd read out of every morning. Went to the couch, sat down next to her, and I said, Mom, I want to accept Jesus. And she tried to talk me out of it, probably because I was young probably concerned that I didn't know what I was doing. But then she led me in a prayer, and I accepted Jesus into my life. And that prayer was very similar to this prayer. And what I'd like to do at this point is to have us read this prayer if you mean it. Maybe it'll be the first time you say this prayer, Maybe it'll be the fourth time you say this prayer. That's okay. But if you don't mean it, then I don't want you saying it. But if you do mean it, I'd like us to read this prayer together and make it meaningful to you this morning. So let's do that together. 
Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner. I know that you died on the cross and rose from the dead so that I could have life. I'm turning from my sin now, and I'm turning to you in faith. I trust in you alone to forgive my sin and give me new life. Thank you for this free gift. Amen.